Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Remember the 1989 Robin Williams movie Dead Poets Society? An unorthodox and inspirational teacher takes on the establishment culture of a prestigious boys' school. Gentlemen, tell you what, not just tear out that page, tear out the entire introduction. I want it gone. History, leave nothing of it. Rip it out. Rip. Be gone, J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. Rip, shred, tear, rip it out. I want to hear nothing but ripping of Mr. Pritchard. We'll perforate it, put it on a roll. <laughs> Not the Bible. You're not going to go to hell for this. The real-life teacher who helped inspire that character has been teaching literature at UConn since 1978. Sam Pickering told us that he doesn't really think much about the movie. In fact, he said he only saw it once and even then missed part of it. There is no mistaking Sam Pickering when you meet him, and even the famously high-strung Robin Williams would have a hard time keeping up with his rapid-fire, stream-of-consciousness style. He came to our studios for an interview, something he rarely does. He prefers email. He talked about teaching, his time in the Middle East, and the school where he's taught for more than 30 years. Sam Pickering, welcome to Where We Live. Well, thank you. How long have you been teaching at UConn? Since 1978. What's changed at the University of Connecticut since then? I've changed. Yeah, you've <laughs> no, changed. How, no, how you I looked changed? in the mirror the other day and I said, <laughs> my God, what happened to that handsome young man who is this grizzled B-A-S-T-A-R-D staring at me? <laughs> so I've changed. Every, the students are still very nice. They're still young and they're... And they're very good. How do you grade? Well, I've gotten very impatient with grades. (laughs) The way to grade is this, and to be happy, is to give each student half a grade higher than he or she could ever imagine getting in their fondest imagination. (laughs) 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 You know, look, I've been been in schools since kindergarten. At 67 years, after a while, after maybe that 50 or 60 years, grades become sort of th- just little nuisances. They're like carpenter ants running across the kitchen floor. You have to l- take care of them, but I don't pay much attention to them. And then how do you how do you grade anyway? Well, that, we won't go into that. Well, I, but it's a, it's an important question because I think you know, I, I teach at Central Connecticut State University. I've only been teaching for maybe about 10 years. I haven't been teaching as long as you, but I, I have noticed that students care about grades. They think that grades are all important. They they, they want to know, you know, how am I going to be graded? And, and, and I don't find it all that important, but they do. Why Here's do you think the they find it so important? Well, because they want to go to graduate school, some yeah. of them. They want to get jobs. It dep- part, they really believe it depends upon their transcript. For example, I yeah. gave a girl an A-, minus, and these grades get posted. Within 30 seconds of the A- minus being posted, she wrote me asking why she got an A- minus <laughs> rather than an A. And you want to be very kind. You don't want to say that you got an A- minus when you really deserve a B- minus, and you are an imbecile for writing, but you, so you give her the reasons. <laughs> but it's not something I think about very much. Yeah. Do, do you think that there's too much emphasis in our society placed on grades? I think there's too much emphasis in our society placed on a lot of things. Grades may be one of them, maybe even on education itself as it's shaped. Mm, t- tell me more about that. Well, I'm not going to say more about it. I've written a piece a long time ago in which I said that um, college was really post-adolescent daycare and, the <laughs> <laughs> and that the students got into debt. And the debt, they were de- in debt all the way through their, through their 20s and into their 30s. And by the time they paid off their debts, their hormones had settled and they were ready, ready to become sensible people. 
Well, ready to be some sensible people, but they got even more debts now. I mean, is, is it's, it, is, it's terrible. It's terrible. So what do we do about that? It costs so much, and then people get out of school. They don't necessarily have a job well, right you away. you don't raise yeah. tuition. Yeah. University of South, where I went, has lowered its tuition 10%. And there are other things. I don't want to say, for example, that a basketball coach at a prominent university uh, makes a salary when everything's added added up that would equal the salaries of 30 assistant professors of English. That does seem a little off. <laughs> it seems a little off, but people will say, you know, the University of Connecticut was sort of a, a sleepy backwater. I haven't mentioned the name of the school. I'll, I'll use the I'll use your school, University of Connecticut, as an example. As an example, please. A, as do. an example, please. So, uh, for instance, the University of Connecticut was was thought of as, as a, a bit of a sleepy university back in the 1970s. Then all of a sudden, big time college athletics come. Basketball comes later. Football, women's athletics, even the the, the most successful women's basketball program in the country. And people come in part, at least the administrators tell me, in part from around the world because they know UConn is an athletics university. Is, is, is that a problem, you think, for the school? Sure, it's a problem, but it's a problem in American society. Things are out of joint. Things are always out of joint. Look, let's put change the subject slightly. Mm. America preaches peace, 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 but we have a war budget. I do not refer to it as defense budget. It's higher than about the next 10 countries in the world added together. We talk about democracy and peace, and we're the number one arms dealer in the world. We elect a president who I thought was going to be the prince of peace, and what does he do? <laughs> war, 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 war. So these things, there are a lot of inconsistencies. Your, your teaching style has been described as unconventional. Do, do you consider it to be unconventional? I don't think about it. No? I really don't think about my teaching style. There's an awful lot of rubbish written about pedagogy. I don't think about that in the slightest bit. The person that you may think is a luminous teacher when you're 21, you may have forgotten by the time you're 40, by the time you're 60, you may think, my God, what a scoundrel. Your idea of teaching changes as you age, what you remember. Also, teachers themselves change. A man starts out or a woman starts out at 35, and all of a sudden their, their spouse becomes an alcoholic. They have 10 terrible years because they've got problems at home. They may have a sick child. So you can't define these things. Of course, one of the things that we talked a little bit earlier about how kids seem so obsessed with the grades that they get, maybe in part that's because through their schooling, through grade school, through middle school, through high school now, they're being taught really for these standardized tests that are so very important. And I, and I guess I'm wondering how that's, that's shown up in the classroom. You have kids who, who are taught one very specific way, and no, then they, they encounter you. It doesn't show up that way. It, it shows up depending on what culture they're from or what country they're from. Some kids come from countries in which the only way to get out of that country is to be tops in the class. And that's sort of an ethnic thing. It doesn't show up very much. Look, And at times have changed. When I went to school, no one ever asked me what I wanted to be, ever. We had no standardized tests. We did not worry about the SATs. Now, when my daughter took the SATs as a sophomore in high school, she made 780 and 780, and I found her crying because she didn't have 800s. <laughs> and I said, that's it. You're not taking them again. <laughs> and she didn't. Yeah? No. And, uh, and she learned, too. I mean, I wonder well, she just got married, but what she learned was that... Uh, how to work the system. For example, when she applied to college, they have this thing, most important person you've ever known. Well, she had this little stuffed cat named Kitty, and Kitty had been with her for 18 years, and eyes had come out, and she'd put them back. So she wrote an essay on Kitty, which I did not read, and drew a picture of Kitty on the application. Everybody else did Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. She said, I'll get into every college in the country, and she did. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> 
<laughs> See, people are going to hear that. Now kids are going to do that. This is an idea. Well, and you hear about this. Well, thing. Now yeah, what's happening yeah. is that people's essays are being shaped by people that parents are paying people to write the kids' essays for them. I want to ask you about about teachers and how teachers are viewed in America today. You know, there's people see teachers as the problem. Talk about getting bad teachers out of out of high school. But what, what, as oh, as a teacher, as a college professor, what do you think about that? People want to believe that that's a cure all for the evils of society and the weakness of society, and they want to think school, schools can cure the cure alls is a cure all, and it's not. You can't compensate for the broken homes, for the drug neighborhoods, for kids who don't want to study, for pressure outside of school. They can do a little bit, but they can't solve that. Religion certainly hasn't solved it. Do, do, you, do you think that people could, uh, could learn a little bit from, from reading? From reading my books? From reading your books. No, certainly. I don't reading know. Reading the Bible? <laughs> sure, but most people will be led astray. I mean, they don't read. Look, they don't read. They don't read. Nobody reads that book. And, and particularly, this is Connecticut. That's <laughs> true. Right, and if you go down south, the people haven't read it either. You know, they talk about all these things, but they haven't read it. Nobody reads it. And if they read it, they read the Sports Illustrated version or the Playboy version. They do not read the Great King James version of the Bible, <laughs> this glorious language. Where, you, you, you're clearly not from around here. Where, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Nashville. Uh, and, and you've been, but you've been in Connecticut now for, for quite some time. How, I've been in New yeah. England since 1963. So... So as, as someone from the South living in New England, I mean, uh, how's it different? How's it different People are here? nice people everywhere. The only thing that's different is people ask you where you're from. That's all right. <laughs> no, that's perfectly all yeah. right. And, and look, it's, I've, I have a good friend of mine who's an African-American writer, and we were having a discussion once in Miami, and he said, Sam, when I walk into a room, I'll look around the room to see if I'll be comfortable. And he said, you have never been uncomfortable in any in any place in your life, and that's true. Syria, Jordan, Australia, Uzbekistan, I have never been uncomfortable. So I don't think about the differences. One of the great differences is some of the stories in the South. People up here don't tell as many stories. But that's, you know, it's trite to say that, but it's true. But that doesn't bother me because I go back and read 19, from my books, read 19th century periodicals, 1850, 1860, and I find stories that I appropriate. <laughs> Did you appropriate? <laughs> yes, Shakespeare appropriated, Milton appropriated. You know, if you if you don't appropriate, you'll never write anything that's any good. <laughs> well, one of the things they they say about New Englanders is uh, maybe the reason we're not storytellers is, is we're more reserved. We don't like to talk about ourselves. Look, New England. One of my sons was in high school in Mansfield. He was the only boy in his history class who had an ancestor who fought in the Civil War. The only boy. That's not New England. It's a different sort of place. Mm. You know, there used to be statues in all these towns. New England is not the New England you're thinking of. Now, we had ancestors on both sides. A uh, man with my name was a Union cavalry captain. So that's, you know, he fought all the way through the war. But, um, no, it's not quite true. The last year and a half, he made an agreement with the Confederates in his area. They wouldn't shoot each other because the war was going to end and they wanted to be alive. Now, that's smart. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's thinking. That's thinking. So, you know, so if you go into a classroom, they talk about the Civil War, and there's not a single kid who had an ancestor who was in the Civil War that they know about. Well, then, is that New England? Is it the New England of Emerson or Thoreau? What is it? Mm. It's a different place. It, well, it, it is a different place. This place is changing all the time. You, Listen, I have yeah. written about America. And I think it should break up. I think New England should join Atlantic Canada. We just let the French have Quebec. 
The South would go its own bloody and bizarre way. <laughs> Texas is already part of Mexico, so we'd have Metaxas, Texas, Mexico, Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California, Southern Nevada. And then we, the Midwest would join Ontario, and the West would join Saskatchewan and Alberta, and they'd destroy everything, mining, chopping the mountains down. The problems I said about this were the two, the two outposts of Vermont, Washington and Oregon, uh, and that, that leads to a problem. <laughs> we are very much a broken nation. What happens to Florida? Florida's not part of the South, is it? Florida is part of New York City at times, but if you talk to a lot of Floridians, you realize they're really quite bizarre. Now, this may be a effect of Alzheimer's, the result of Alzheimer's disease and some of those people in those holding camps down there. You say, it's a, you say it's a broken nation. What do we do to fix it? I don't think we do. No? The nations break up. It's broken. I don't think we can fix it. Look, I have so... So little in common with some. Now I get I get along very well with people if I don't talk about religion or politics. I don't talk about that very much, you know. And uh, I get along well with people, and they're very pleasant. But we don't have much in common. We have different views on the nature of. of I hate to mention the word abortion. We have all sort of different sort of views, and I don't know how we fix it. And I'm not going to worry about fixing it. People used to ask me, Mr. Pickering, said, "What can we do to fix our educational system?" And I'd say, well, would you get back to me in about 10 years from now? And then they die, and I'd never hear from them, thank God. <laughs> this is Look, question. what Americans want. Americans <laughs> want platitudes. Mm. We're committed to excellence. But, but don't, we have, don't we have to be number one in the world? Don't we have to be better than China and in India? High school, I, I played on a high school football team. For four games, we were number one in the state. We had our pictures all over the state newspaper holding up our fingers. Then we got beat 56 to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we're not number one. There's not one thing we're number one in. I mean, look at any survey. We're not number one in anything except except war budget, you know. We're not number one. So just not live with it. How nice it would be to be in, say, Switzerland and say we're just a little pissant place and we're very happy. Now, now you, you have been and you spent some time in, in other parts of the world. And I want to ask you about your time in, in Syria. You were there in the early 1980s. I was in Jordan for a year and Syria for a year. And my wife and I, first year we were married, we lived in Latakia, Syria. Mm. And what was Syria like then? I loved it. They had, a, they had a civil war going on. The Muslim brothers were assassinating uh, Russians and other people. And Hafez al-Assad, uh, with great brutality, smashed it. But the Mideast, the 100 years, remember the 100 years war, the 30 years war in Europe, uh, they've never ended. They've just changed places, <laughs> mm. changed different parts of the world. There's also a statement about Americans that you probably heard. Americans are not happy unless they're at war. So we get involved in wars we should not be involved in. At least we have the last, well, since Vietnam. We've gotten involved in, in some conflicts that the people of the United States seemingly have backed and others that they haven't. For instance, you know, Afghanistan was a war that people thought we should we should get into. A lot of people did. And Iraq was a war that a lot of people thought we shouldn't. Some people thought we should get involved in, in Libya. Other people didn't. We did. Yeah. 26,000 sorties. Do you think the, quotes rebels would have won without all those airplane bombing runs? Of course they wouldn't. And now it's turned because the uh, more fundamentalist Sunnis are pushing out the moderates, which is going to happen in Syria. The Alawites are thought by some of the Sunnis to really be secular, not even to be Muslims, and they are secular, and they're going to be pushed out. So what do you think when you do read the newspapers, you do take a look at what is happening in Syria right now, a place that you I know well? I think of man's inhumanity to man, something that will never end, and I don't have an answer for it. And 
It's interesting because you 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 say this a lot. You, you know, you you don't have an answer, but a, a lot of people probably come to you for answers. You got students coming to you for answers on these and all sorts of other things. I tell them to think. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's awful easy to give an answer. It's you know, answers are simple. Life is complex. Look. Let's talk about teaching writing. Yeah. We teach writing, we tell kids to write short declarative sentences. Subject, verb, predicate, period. You know, express what you think. Well, life itself is not a sentence. Life is a complex thing with run-on sentences, grammar errors, dangling modifiers. And once you put it in short declarative sentences, you understand that you're, if you're subtle, you're, di- you're distorting everything. You know. Now, I say write short declarative sentences because that's really the only way to write. But life is more complex. So we always end up dealing with, uh, as I say, slogans. And we don't get very deep. Some people do, but very rarely. I, I have one last thing I want to talk to you about that uh, that, that I, I had not uh, I had not read. Tucker Ives, our, our producer, had, had wanted me to ask you about this, and I think this is this is actually fascinating. After after we talked about it, you you wrote a long time ago about about what you believe the national bird should be. The, the the national bird is right now is of course the bald eagle. It's a it's a bird. I said very, starling. Very, very few of us see, but you, you said the starling. Why should the starling I said, be the national you know, bird? Oh hell! I wrote this in the New York Times. I said, look. Most America, the starting came in 1890. Yeah. I said most Americans in this country are immigrants coming after 1890. I said the starling is a greasy bird. It goes around in flocks. It has a nasty <laughs> nest. I said, have you ever walked around the street and looked at Americans? They look like starlings. <laughs> I said, they make a lot of noise. So I said, and, and, and the other thing I said it was the bald eagle was, and this is not quite accurate, I said a lonely bird. It had the appearance of a warlike bird. A starling's not a warlike bird. It just, you know, so I don't know about that. <laughs> And I, <laughs> but I've done a lot of those kind of things, and I, and um, I mean I did the same thing with school prayer. Remember that controversy? Yeah. I said we don't need school prayer. I said a, a sixth grader doesn't know what prayer is. I said what we need is business prayer. And I said business should open up every day with a prayer. I said of course airlines will fold because if you got on the plane and saw the pilot praying, said oh my God, <laughs> let me off. I said banks would not write, send you these letters saying borrow money, but they'd write a letter and say don't borrow money from us. You don't have enough. You'll be ruined. I said then I went on to say if we did have business prayer and they reformed, the economy, the people would be honest. The economy would go belly up. It'd be terrible. So I guess the safest place for prayer is in schools because it has no effect whatsoever. Upon the performance of adults, <laughs> right? You know I'm right. <laughs> so you write these things. You you turn things yeah. around. Now that's an easy thing to do to turn things. Yeah. But you turn them around. You think about them. Right now I'm gonna I'm writing a piece called Undead Unretired. And, Undead uh, Unretired. I retired in June. Yeah. But the state can't process the money which I put in the right form. I can't process the money for me to buy into the state plan. They're way behind. So I talked to somebody in the comptroller's office, and he said, Mr. Pickering, I'm not you, but if I were you, I'd unretire for you, and maybe by then we'll have these things. <laughs> so I'm writing about the undead, and I, you know, I'm unretired. <laughs> you always write. I'm always writing something. So you're retired. Yeah, but I'm no longer retired. I, I'm retired. <laughs> I, I retired in June. I got the money in the right form, and I waited all summer for them to take it. What the hell are you going to do as a retired person? I'm not retired anymore. Well, I, well eventually it will happen. I'm going to write. Yeah. I'm going to write. Look, I've read everything ever written. But as a friend of mine told me once, and he didn't mean this as a compliment, <laughs> <laughs> he said, Sam, you hide your learning better than anyone I've ever known. <laughs> so what did I do with that? What did I do? I scratched it down, put it in an essay. It's a great line. Oh, it's a wonderful <laughs> line. I loved it. 
Hey, do you have a Kindle? No. No, I don't, you... I, I don't even have a cell phone. Look here. <laughs> Look, people don't contact me. You know, I, and I'm a bit reclusive. I don't know why I'm in here today. Um, because <laughs> as, as, I, as I wrote Tucker, I said, one of these things about an interview like this, it's, you know, you're always guilty of embarrassing spontaneity. <laughs> and that's where I like it. And so, no, I don't have a Kindle. I never used a cell phone in my life. Um, my daughter got married recently. We went off to marry on Martha's Vineyard. We were gone a week. I come home. I check the emails to see if a student needs a recommendation. All the rest I delete unread. Mm. I am glad we got in touch with you. Sam Pickering, thanks so much for talking. Okay, very nice to be here. Our program is produced by Tucker Ives with help from Heather Brandon and Betsy Kaplan. Katie Talarski is the senior producer of Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>